0: No, so. he is not. But we have confirmations
1: coming up, so. We'll oh have... my gosh, I'm the confirmation expert right now. I've been confirming like a madman out here.
0: <laughs>
2: I'm legally obligated to tell you, Bishop, that I've started recording.
1: Oh, you have. Okay, mm-hmm. is Rob on there?
2: Rob, Bishop, you're here. Bishop, right? I
1: just got here. How hey. are you? Excellent, boy. This technology is great, isn't it? I mean, I can hear you guys like you're right next door. Three dogs north is an attempt to objectify the subjective with little violence as possible. The following has been torn from its origins in space and time and put internally at
2: your disposal. So you've been doing a lot of confirmations?
1: Aye, aye, aye. I've done 13 now and I've got 18 to go. Um, so last weekend I did four. One on Friday, 180 kids. And I had two on Saturday, and I had one last night of about a hundred kids. So I've been getting my confirmation workout. My yeah. sermon now I think is kind of in shape. My first confirmation <laughs> sermon, uh, but I'm already a little bit sick of it. You know, having given it 13 times.
2: Well, I was thinking about that because uh, Bishop Alberto Rojas came to do our confirmation, and he had one every night of the week last week. Yeah, no, it's crazy. Do you have you ever had that?
1: No, but what we do in L.A. is um, they're all in this one season. They're all like in a two-month period. Mm-hmm. So I'll typically have like four or five on a weekend, and then occasionally one during the week. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's like a seven or eight-week period when you just intensely go after it. But yeah, it's a lot. They're they're uh, energy-consuming, but they're also they're great. I've I've enjoyed the confirmations a lot. They're very moving to me. You know, as you're standing as a very unworthy successor of the apostles, but you're mediating the Holy Spirit, and these kids come forward, and they're you know high school kids, 15 years old, and they're bearing the name hmm. of one of the great saints of the church. And you just have this wonderful sense of continuity, the Spirit <laughs> given to the apostles who then gave it to the church and then up and down the centuries to these great saints and now to these kids. And the other night I was up in um, Santa Inez, which is one of the uh, Padre Serra missions. It's up over the mountains from where I live. And there were about 35 kids there, but we're gathered in this the old mission that goes wow. back to Sarah's time. Dude. So when the whole thing was over, I just was kind of moved by the Holy Spirit to say to them, as I want all you Confirmandi now to look around this place. And we're standing in this this wonderful old, you know, church that was built by these intrepid missionaries who brought the faith to this part of the world. And it's been passed on now, these two centuries, and now you got it. We passed the torch on mm-hmm. to you. And so this is not just a time for you to you know have a nice time with your family. This is a really key moment in your life, and you got to be faithful to the people that bequeathed the faith to us you know, so last night I was in this suburban parish, real modern parish, but i I told that same story to the kids and um so we'll see yeah questions. i
2: was uh I finished Cardinal George's book last night after masses I kind you of went, was ravenous his it? his last one, yeah, I got yeah. the humanism, and one of the lines are a bunch of great kind of cardinal georgesms in it but one of my favorite was every catholic is born 2000 years old
1: yeah yeah it's good uh,
2: as be, being a member of the church <clears throat> well, i think
1: uh, of him all the time because i've got um i've got his uh, you know prayer card in my breviary and the other day of course was his anniversary when i was home i was home briefly right after easter for a few days and i made a point of going out to cardinal george's grave it was just before they put this new uh, slab on it with all his dates and everything. Yeah, I saw the picture of but, that. Yeah, and I was just, I, I stayed there for about a half hour. I just prayed part of the rosary and I was just, you know, very moved. And the the photograph, you guys all know it, it was toward the end of his life. It's this formal photograph and he's wearing this petrol cross that John Paul II gave him hmm. when he did the retreat at the Vatican. Well, anyway, it was not long after I was named a bishop. Uh, Dan Flens, his secretary, called me and said, Would you like one of the Cardinals' pectoral crosses? You know, so I said, Whoa. Yes. So I go down there and uh, he had this little box with pectoral crosses. And the one that caught my eye immediately, I didn't know the story of it at all, but it was that one. It's this beautiful golden cross, you know. So I said, Well, could I have this one? And then Dan told me the story of it, that John Paul II had given it to Cardinal George. And on the back of it is John Paul II's coat of arms. And so I said, boy, that's, that's the one, if I could, you know, that I would like to take. So I have it here in Santa Barbara and I've worn it just a couple of times, like on real formal occasions. I don't want to you know, risk losing it or damaging it somehow. Uh, but it's a link to Cardinal George and then behind him to John Paul too. And, uh, so yeah, I think of him all the time, Cardinal George. And I, yeah, you and me In both. my little chapel, I, I
2: invoke him all the time. I, I ask him for his help and, uh, Great figure, I met his sister um oh, I'd great. seen her at the funeral, but I met her the other night this past week uh, Jean luc Marion and others did a little symposium on the book. Oh, how was that? I heard about it? Yeah, how it was very was... good there man it was well attended, maybe two hundred and fifty people. there were Nashville Dominicans there, all sorts of priests, many, many what lay did, people. What did Marion say about him? I'd be curious. he focused on um you know integration. the last few chapters are all about integrating you know the intellectual life uh integrating Vatican II and and that idea being sort of a, a watchword for George on in terms of not being countercultural, uh, even yeah. though he's very much not he's not the typical liberal tack of the you know, the world sets the agenda, yeah. but rather um, you know, it's still boldly proclaiming the truth, the, you know, the the truth of the tradition and the revealed yeah. word of God, but in cultural terms, because nobody can be outside of their own culture. so
1: No, right. And that's a key point he made all the time, that you can't... He didn't like the language of counterculture. He didn't like being called a culture warrior, did not like the language of countercultural. Because he said it was like a fish trying to swim against the ocean. Like, you know, the culture is just in us. It's just who we are. Mm -hmm. And somehow within the culture, you critique aspects of the culture. But you can't... He didn't like that sort of sectarian, you know, retreat language and, you know, I'm against it. He was playing a more subtle game of being within it and critiquing elements of it. Um, and that's so, what,
2: yeah, we've been talking about that on the podcast a little bit in terms of like art and Catholic art or Catholic podcasts and, and things that are sort of self-consciously Catholic rather than um, legitimate or, or sincere contributions to the cultural canon of uh, mm-hmm. be, just being... A, a great artist who is Catholic and therefore puts their whole heart and soul, and also narratives of grace in their novels or whatever. We, Rob, just finished the end of the affair by Graham Greene. We talked about oh, that yeah. at length. Yeah. But just being moved by great art that is not, you know, that's you could might say that's a Catholic novel like *Brideshead Revisited* or something. But obviously, classic. You know, anybody can read that and be moved by it, whether you believe in God, whether you are yeah. Catholic or Protestant or whatever. Um, it's a human story, and therefore, um, you know, moving and and displays God's work, His providence in yeah. in human stories.
1: Yeah, and it's a play of implicit, explicit, you know, which is okay. I think you can you can implicitly bring the faith to bear through different artistic means. You don't always have to be utterly explicit in what you're doing. Mm-hmm. That's okay. It's more of a of a um, subtle, clandestine strategy. And that's okay. I think that's been used by great masters, you know, over the years, because sometimes the the really explicit approach can be off-putting to people and your message won't get through. Um, Yeah, it's a subtle game, isn't it? And Cardinal George, though, is a good example of that. And it's wrong just to see him one-sidedly as this guy that stood, you know, against the
2: culture. Uh, He was a, a student of culture. Yeah, and he and, points out uh, John Paul II. I, you know, I didn't even right. really know this, that he was a poet and a playwright and yeah. quotes oh at length some of his plays and poems. Uh, Absolutely. I no, he was um, all of that. I knew he was uh, an actor, but... Yeah, I don't know he wrote
1: poetry. Really, I th- I'm sure it was Cardinal George who told me this story about John Paul being asked during his papacy, how come he doesn't write any more poetry? And his answer was, no context. And I think in really? the cardinal said, what he meant by that was his life had become so kind of regularized or so institutionalized, you know, as Pope, mm. that he lacked the context of, like, people's lives. You know, when he was a young man and he's, he's on the kayaking trips and working with young people and families and within marriages, and there was a much more direct contact with life. And so he said, as a Pope, no context, mm. which is wow. interesting.
2: Well, that, that gets us to the wow. culture point. I mean, his immersion in the life of people see that's what to me i mean a practical question you being bored of your of your confirmation homily already you know being being kind of insulated from things like when you have to do confirmation after confirmation and it is beautiful you know you're you're yeah. with these kids and they're in the long line of <clears throat> apostolic succession receiving being sealed yeah. with the gift of the holy spirit but at the same time i i know the feeling too that you know being an mc at a at a confirmation going around to the different parishes following a bishop was much different than for instance, last week when I know these kids from youth group and from teaching them in school and from, you know, training them to be altar servers and all this different stuff. I know them more. Um,
1: Yeah.
2: I don't, I just don't, that, that seems like a, a difficulty in terms of, you know, how do you, how do you maintain the freshness of like for funerals, for instance, you know, I don't want to say the same thing at every funeral, so yeah. I, I kind of, I mean, I maybe have three or four that I cycle through, but... Um. Right, and that's, I think, what
1: I had when I was in the parish full-time, four or five maybe homilies, but that's okay. You know, I, I would always make a point of, of course, going to the wake and you'd meet the families, but very often you don't know the people very well, and I'd to try to get a few insights about them, um, but that's okay. I mean, to bring the, the great objectivity of Christian revelation to bear at a funeral is okay, and our you know hyper sentimentalized time, we're always looking for you know, all this experiential stuff. Oh, that's true. But you know, you don't need that. I think mm-hmm. it's okay to bring the great objectivities uh, to bear. So same like with these confirmations, I don't know these kids obviously from Adam or Eve, but um there I come as as a representative of the church, you know, as a successor of the apostles. Like, Again, however unworthy, don't psycholo- psychologize that language either. As so oh, look at me, I'm, <laughs> I'm like you know Saint Bartholomew or something. No, I, I but I'm. By the grace of God, I am what I am, as Paul would say, and so I'm. I've got this job to bear the tradition, and I think that's that's just a good thing. It's an objective truth that stands before these kids. That's why I like, for example, I like when we use incense and we use some of the higher elements liturgically because I want the Catholic thing to be on full display, you know.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and I think that's the that's the power of these uh, these confirmations.
0: Well, Bishop Barron, I don't know if you knew this, but um, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you picked it up after listening to all of our episodes on the podcast. <laughs> but Cardinal George is one of our great patrons that we we're constantly asking for his intercession and um, I just referencing him a lot, especially from within the foundation of the podcast. He's definitely like one of those huge pillars which we were yeah. able to stand on, even uh, though he, he probably, probably wouldn't are, approve God, of it.
1: did to hear. <laughs> Uh, I don't know if you know the story, but this goes back right before I was named a bishop. It must have been like early last summer. Brian Welter, you know, who was the dean of formation at Mundelein, and I was still rector at the time. Brian got back from IPF, and he was teaching there. And he said that in dialogue, you know, with various people and his spiritual director, he said it became really clear to him that Cardinal George is a powerful intercessor. That's Mm. what became clear to him. Mm. And I said, yeah, that wouldn't surprise me. And he said to me, why don't we go to his grave? And, you know, the day of his funeral, I was doing TV um, coverage. I wasn't at the Mass uh, directly, and I didn't go to his burial. So I had never been to the grave. And so Brian and I took a little, you know, field trip from Underline, and we went down to, you know, the very simple All Saints Cemetery in Des Plaines. And uh, we just—we we prayed the rosary at Cardinal George's grave, and it was very moving to me. And, and that line of Brian's has stayed in my mind, that I, he's a powerful intercessor, and I think that's right.
2: And so you know, that's why I keep invoking him. Hmm. I thought you were well, going to say that Brian Welter said at IPF that <clears throat> Three Dogs North was a powerful influence in the lives of some parents. <laughs> Maybe he'll get to that. He didn't mention it. But. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, funny story about Cardinal George in intercession. I When I met his sister at that. Um, yeah, she's lovely, Margaret. She's oh, very, very sweet. And I told her, um, you know, I pray to Cardinal George every day and I pray for him. And she goes, you don't need to pray for him. Just pray to him. And I thought yeah. to myself, okay, well, I acknowledge that, but he would hate he, Oh, he, hates that, yeah. <laughs> he would hate to hear you say that. <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> of course you pray <laughs> you for
0: know, it was a
1: great Carl George moment. This was, I I had been named a bishop at this point, but I hadn't come out here. And uh I was with a bunch of priests, I forget what it was now, but Jim Preston was there, my classmate, my great friend. And uh we both were seized by the spirit of Carl George because I said to a bunch of the priests, Well, you know that, the difficulty here is, uh, you know, I've been a Chicago priest all my life, and and I just got a letter telling me that you know now I am officially a priest of the Archdiocese of Los Angeles, and I said it just it just seems so weird, and then at almost at that moment I was seized by Cardinal George, and I said. Well, what's the difference chicago it's just a city it's just a passing reality come, <laughs> the city of man <laughs> someday and what matters is you're a priest and now a bishop of jesus christ who cares about los angeles or chicago <laughs> and then pressed it, and we just began riffing on this and i thought it, we were seized by the spirit of carl because that's exactly <laughs> right the right attitude is not like oh poor me i'm leaving my home of chicago mm. well yeah i get it sentimentally but from a theological standpoint He's right. Yeah. <laughs> Who cares? Chicago, it comes and goes. It'll be washed away someday, you know. Uh, and it doesn't. Ma- and LA doesn't matter. What matters is that you're a, a priest and a bishop of the church. I loved, you know, the sort of bracing
2: uh, realism of Cardinal George. That was such a gift he gave. And it came off. It came off depending on if you knew him or or could handle that. He he remember t- sitting down with him before the March for Life, and he was talking about somebody had asked him. Famous people he had met who really impressed him. And uh, John Paul II was the only one he said that really he was in awe of. But mm-hmm. he said, I, I met presidents and, you know, speakers of the House and all these people. And my thought was always, I can do things they can't do. <laughs> <laughs>
0: right.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I, I've told this story publicly before, but uh, I had just met Cardinal George at this point. It was very early on in his time. And I had helped him with a speech he was giving in Washington. So he very nicely said, why don't you come with me? And, you know, for the thing. So I flew to DC with, I didn't know him well at all at that point. And um, so we get to Washington and then we both, it was, we spent the overnight there at a hotel. And early in the morning, I know DC pretty well. I studied there. So I went for a walk around the mall and, you know, so I I come back for breakfast with Cardinal George. I said, you know, trying to make small talk. And I well, it was. I had a great morning. I walked around and you know the mall and admired the buildings. And and he said, "Well, they'll all be destroyed like that." <laughs> and you know, I am like, "What? Are, what are you talking about?" And then he laughed. You know, and he, he made this point. And, well, you know, of course, Washington will all be swept away. And then what matters is the eternal kingdom of God and not the passing kingdoms of human beings. But I, I sort of learned his style and he laughed about it, of course. But uh I think people, as you suggest, might be might have been put off by that or they didn't know him well enough. But
2: mm-hmm. he was just full of kind of gospel realism. Well, speaking of the city of man, what's the I'm curious to hear your thoughts on what the biggest cultural differences are are out there? Because I mean there's such a stereotypical view of, of LA and the West Coast and everything. But have yeah. you run into much difference? Well-
1: how would I put it? It's hard. It's hard to say. I've been here for eight months, so not a you know huge amount of time. Um, basic observation: people are people. You know, that's always been my experience around the world, and that's true here. I've been super well received, I must say, by the Catholics of the archdiocese, priests, the people have been great. You know, mm-hmm. here's a general remark, and this is now from reading the L.A. Times, from watching the news, from kind of getting into the culture here there's it's uber left i mean politically uh spiritually there's kind of an uber left uh, default position i'd say people have my experience though it's not aggressive it's more the um you know universal tolerance and uh you know you got your point of view i got mine that's okay and it's kind of a laid-back liberalism i would i would mm. say culturally and politically uh not aggressive I even sensed a lot of aggression toward me as a religious person. In fact, the L.A. Times twice reached out to me to do uh, a piece. I wrote a piece on religion and science, and I wrote something for Christmas, and the L.A. Times, you know, published it with without any kind of change. And hmm. uh, um, so that's been my again, but that's based on eight months and you know a very superficial uh, grasp probably of the place. Um, but I, I've been you know happy here, well received. I don't feel aggression toward uh religion. Mm-hmm. Um made any contacts so, in Hollywood yet? Just a couple in very indirect ways. Uh, we're working on some things to try to just reach out. There is a, a sort of strong Catholic community in the entertainment world and um a number of people that whose names you'd you'd recognize, and we're trying to to reach out to them just to find like points of contact. You know, how can you help us with the church's mission? How can we help you? Um and then a couple little feelers, but I don't want to talk about them too much, that we're, we're trying just to just to reach out or mm-hmm. establish a, a contact. Um, so pray about that. As as someone very wise said to me out here, um, you know, when you're moving into that world, you're moving into the, the devil's territory. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> wow. He's got uh, control of a lot of that. You know, oh, yeah, for so sure. And you start moving into it in the hopes of influencing it in a better direction that you're doing a frontal assault on the... Uh, <laughs> the empire of the dark powers, you know. I don't want to over dramatize that, but uh, uh, no, uh, I don't think you dramatize it enough. Yeah. There's a spiritual danger, I think, involved in doing that kind of work. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, Bishop,
3: you'd be uh, I given a couple on internship here.
1: You know, Charleston, there's really
3: a lot of similarities between Charleston and Los Angeles, as I hear you, as I hear yeah. you talk. Um, yeah. Both but, cultural uh, centers. And- uh huh. Yeah, absolutely. If it absolutely. plays in Charleston. Uh huh. And, uh, Anyway, but I've given a couple of little reflections at mass and stuff. And one of the things, um, one of the things that I said was a story. I don't even know if you remember it, but our first year, Mike and I's first year in the seminary, you came and met with our pre-theology one class and you had just, you had just seen Father Charlie Meyer, like right before yeah. that. And I remember you came in and we didn't know what you were going to talk about. And uh, you were telling us you would ask Father Meyer what to talk about with us. Yeah. And he was like, he was like, go tell him how great it is to be a priest. Yeah. And I remember honestly that was one of that's one of the like single memories from my time in seminary so far that has stuck out to me. And it was just stories of your priesthood and you know what maybe challenges are going to face us or um whatever. Yeah. But I wanted to tell you why I had you you know on the phone like how much I did appreciate you doing that, but just curious of, like, yeah, and as a time as a bishop now and in Los Angeles, like, do you find those moments maybe in different ways like it's still coming or, or even, like, a question, are you still getting asked really good questions by the people? Um, it's just interesting, like, being in a parish context of, mm. like, you just get so many compliments and everything like that. Even here, you give a little reflection at Mass and everyone tells you, how good it is and everything. But, um, I don't know, just like to really engage good questions. Are you still getting that?
1: You know, I'm, I'm intrigued by a lot of things you said. And I, I kind of vaguely remember that when I came to see you guys and, and seeing Charlie probably at breakfast, you know, he'd be there. You yeah. and I had kind of the same rhythm for breakfast and, uh, that response of it because Charlie's like famously crusty old you know curmudgeon. <laughs> but well, he had been a priest by for like seven right. years at that. First. Yeah, yeah. And, but that's pretty typical though of him. That sounds like that's what he would say. Something as simple and direct as that. And so I'm I kind of am very moved by that. It's the way divine providence works, you know. A I, until you brought it up, I had like zero memory of that. Uh, it yeah. did not stay in my imagination. as but that it it influenced you, and that's how God used Charlie. In his simple, sure. curmudgeonly way, to <laughs> tell me something, which I then told you, there's something beautiful about that. We're a priest at, over 90 years old at that point yeah. communicating to you, who were probably what 23 or four at the time, right, uh, right. It's great. It's beautiful. Um, the other side of your question, one thing you know, I really liked about being a bishop out here is it's a much more pastoral job. You know, hmm. I started out as a as a parish priest. Then I went into academics. I got my doctorate and started teaching. And, you know, I've always pushed the pastoral side of that, you know, in doing my preaching work and evangelization work. But my basic thing was, you know, I was an academic, and I was a reader, a writer, a speaker, lecturer, all that. One thing about this job as auxiliary bishop is I'm I'm really back in a very pastoral um, mm-hmm. setting. I'm going to parishes all the time. I'm, you know, greeting people, talking to people, involved with them. I'm involved in... Um, you know the lives of the priests and and their concerns and and trials et cetera it's a it's a more of a smell of a sheep kind of job hmm. uh, which i you know I like and um yeah, to your pointed question, I find a lot of the younger people whom I engage a lot um yeah full of of good religious questions yeah. um I try to be i guess it's a little bit of the cardinal george spirit, you know, try to be direct clear um, unapologetic in my teaching of the Catholic faith. Um, Ron Rollheiser, you know, who's a, um, OMI priest, he was a friend of Cardinal George's and he himself is a, is an academic, a writer. When I was named a bishop, he emailed me right away. And he said, you, you must be a teaching bishop. Don't let them involve you, you know, so much in administration. And, and I, I take that seriously. I think that's right. I am a, a teaching bishop. And, uh, that's what I like to do. I like to get out to the to the parishes and the people and, and teach the faith. So you've had opportunities to do that? Yeah. I know because the thing is, I, I would teach in some ways more now than I ever have because hmm. wherever I go—so this morning I'm here. I had I was recording homilies, and then with you guys, and now I'm meeting with a group at lunch, and then I got all the seminarians, the deacons who are being ordained priests in a few weeks. They're coming for dinner tonight.
0: Uh, oh, cool. My house.
1: So it's, a, it's, yeah, it's a good day. It's one of these. But normally when I'm out and about, that's what I'm doing. I come someplace, it might be a fundraiser, it might be a, a parish event, it might be a school's week, it's this and that. But I'm always called upon at some point to get up at a microphone and teach. And so I, <laughs> I try to be friendly and, and all that, but my primary job is, okay, I'm here to teach the Catholic faith. um Cardinal, not Cardinal, he's not Cardinal yet, Archbishop uh, Gomez When I first arrived here, I said to him, okay, Archbishop, what are my marching orders? What do you want me to do? As bluntly as that, I just asked him. And he thought for a little bit and he said, I want you to be present to the people. Secondly, I want you to give them hope because they've been through a lot. And thirdly, I want you to teach them doctrine. Mm -hmm. And so I came home, wrote those down. And of course I don't have to, they're in my mind permanently. And I take it very seriously. When I wake up in the morning, my job is to be present to the people. So smell of the sheep. I got to get out. And I've done that. I'm constantly out, you know, with the folks. I like the fact, by the way, you know, my Crozier. I got this wooden Crozier, which I like but it's got a couple of really good dents on it now because <laughs> you give it to the kids, you know, and they, they're supposed to hang on to it, but they're always dropping it and they lean it <laughs> against the wall then it falls over. But I like it. I like the dents. It's like, I'm, you know, the smell
2: of the sheep kind of shepherd.
0: Uh, it's so- not because you've been hitting people. It's, just, well, it's, it's yeah, why don't
2: they bring that back from the confirmation, right? <laughs> yeah.
3: that was but, what I was. Gonna yeah. Ask.
0: Yeah.
1: Well, you know, I I brought back is uh, soldiers of Christ is in my homily. I call them that explicitly, and I talk about right. being a soldier, and I talk about the Mother Teresa nuns in Yemen and what what that was like mm-hmm. to, oh, yeah. to stand your ground, you know. And and you guys are not we're not horsing around here. We're making you soldiers, and and that means you know the gifts of the Holy Spirit and courage and blah blah blah. So I do try to make that point, but be present to the people, and then give them hope. So that's where, you know, it's trying to be positive, upbeat, You know, that the Lord Jesus Christ is still active in his church, and we're all part of this. And then thirdly, the archbishop told me, teach them doctrine. So, okay, whenever I get up in front of people, I think my job here, in part, is to teach them some doctrine. So I do that.
2: Yeah, the doctrine thing, I think especially, just being a parish priest now for, oh, what, a year and a half, uh, has caused me to, or forced me to distill down the message. And I ask a question that you, you proposed at some point at one of those Christmas parties. I think we talked about this last time we had you on. What is the gospel? Yeah. I asked that question. Anytime I have parents in who want to get their kid baptized or couples in who want to be married, any, any sort of, um, small group interaction, RCIA, I ask them, what is the gospel? What do you think, uh, is the good news? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's always some. Well, the first question I ask is, what is your relationship with God? That there are basically five answers to that question. A, I don't believe in God. Uh, two, I I don't know if I believe in God. Three, I believe in karma or some other impersonal force. Mm-hmm. Four, I believe in a personal God, but I don't have a relationship with him. I, I don't do anything about it. And five, I believe in God and I have a daily lived active relationship intentionally with him. Mm hmm. So I I see where on the spectrum do you fall? And I want you to be honest, because otherwise, you know, if you don't believe in God, then you're going to have very different questions than a person who, say, believes in him, but has never had the impetus to do anything about that, you know, doesn't go to Sunday Mass. Yeah. yeah. Um, but then that question of what is the gospel? I mean, those are the basic questions. And we, I, what I find in confirmation classes or CCD is that people we're, were teaching astrophysics to kindergartners, like the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit. Well, why... Who is the Holy Spirit? You know, what? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I've got my seventh graders that I was teaching confirmation, all these call response echo, like how many natures does Christ have Two. what are they? Human, divine. And, <laughs> you know, like basic. Well, I find it's, yeah. it's Christology, Christology and soteriology are the two big things that, that make us distinctly Catholic. Well, first, Christology makes us distinctly Christian, that we believe that that Jesus is God. And then how does he save us? Is it just, oh, I believe in him so I can sit on my couch on Sunday and believing that he died for my sins? Or is he in solidarity with us and we have to join him and our faith yeah. means nothing. It's dead if we don't follow. Yeah.
1: And there's your good, um, you know, patristic construal of the gospel. As I think last time we talked, Deus fit homo and homo Deus is the gospel. God became human that we might become God. So he shared his nature with us that we might be drawn into his life. That's the gospel. And so it has all those implications you're talking about there. It's not just sit back and he did something for me, but it's I'm now going to participate in his life through the sacraments and through the call to holiness and all those good things. But that's a good Catholic summary of
2: what what the gospel is. And then it's like, okay, so what are you going to do about that? You know, if it's a parent um, coming in to have their child baptized, you know, you— you are taking on the responsibility. It's not an optional accessory to raise yeah. your child in the faith. This is God's... He, he gave you this responsibility in giving you this life. The most important aspect of their education, you wouldn't let them skip kindergarten or first grade. Um, You know, they should be Sunday mass, prayer in the home. And then as soon as they're t- learning anything else formally in school, then they're, then they're learning the Catholic faith, either in a Catholic school or in religious ed. But... We've yeah. just gotten so far away from doctrine. And that I think, I mean, to Archbishop Gomez's point, I think people are really interested in it. That's my Yes, yes. yes. Oh no, I They're starving.
1: I, right. And if we had another six hours, I would give you a speech on this one. But <laughs> that's what happened after the council is that we were so obsessed with, you know, relevance and all that that we kind of muted doctrine and we turned the faith into something else, which was at the end of the day far less interesting. Mm-hmm. And you can see it because so many people have fallen away. But, yes, doctrine is fascinating. Remember that awful song that I think we still sing it once in a while? You know, Not in dusty dogmas and doctrines, but in something else. I think it's Gather Us in, which dusty is bad. Dogmas. And that's literally the language of the song. And so one time at Mundelein, I'm walking in from mass, and I'm singing this song. I think my whole life is about dusty dogmas. <laughs> giving given my life for dusty doctrines. You know, I love them. No, but that's that's a prejudice, of course, that, that – uh, Doctrine is not interesting. Doctrine is the whole thing. It's it's the solid food, you know, that, that Paul talks about. So, and just no, no, for it, the
3: record, just for the record, Bishop, we do have you scheduled for six more hours. So, <laughs> oh, good, okay, I'm pretty good. Yeah, yeah, anyway. I'm not, uh, no.
2: yeah. Can you postpone that lunch?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'll postpone it. Yeah, okay. um, you know, and then I, I hope today, in between things, I can get down to the beach. One of the things about Santa Barbara, my house, where I'm I'm speaking from right now. I'm about a two minute walk from the mountains. Uh there are mountains just north of me here with these beautiful trails. I'm about a six minute drive from the ocean front. So I can go down there and wow. I can walk for miles on the beach. So I do that for exercise now. because um, it's just like incomparably beautiful. But I'll I- I'd never live in a more beautiful place than I am right now. I got it's like the Riviera, mountains to the north of me, and the sea is right to the south. So I'm hoping I can squeeze <laughs> squeeze that in at
2: some point today. <laughs> You know, it's interesting. I, you know, I lived in Northern California for a while when I was oh, a, right. doing yeah. firefighting. Yeah, and yeah. it's a it's a different cultural milieu. In a lot of ways, it's uh, country living, but it's yeah. still the West Coast, and they had that sort of laid back liberalism you were talking about. Where
1: yeah.
2: I'd mentioned, you know, I'm thinking about becoming a Catholic priest, and a there was like really no sense of what that meant because it was such an unchurched right. place. <laughs> yeah. uh, I remember like months after I'd told somebody that. I mentioned the celibacy thing or something like that. And i are like, what is that? And, you know, you can't get married if you're a priest. What?
0: Why would you want dude, to do
2: it then?
1: Dude, <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> so there was no
2: sense of... Uh, yeah. yeah. I don't know. I mean, in Chicago, it's such a Catholic city that... Right. You're, you're right. Like, if somebody's opposed to... Um, or if they if they vehemently believe something in contradiction to the church's moral teaching or or anthropology, they will have ready some... Grievance, you know, yeah. whereas out there I found it was like, oh, cool, man. That's what you're into. That's all right.
1: Yeah, right. That's that's <laughs> my experience of it, too, uh, which
2: is, you know, at least you can maybe work with that. Uh, it's a yeah. it's an open door you can walk through. Oh, but the other point with about that, all that beauty around you was that I found there were not no atheists. I, I never ran into an atheist. Yeah, uh, I ran into a lot of unchurched people who didn't yeah. you know, know what they believed about God. But, but I mean, if you press them yeah they i mean they were around mountains and rivers and yeah. valleys and beautiful sunsets and they're like they knew they didn't make that it, It's right. in the urban center where everything is man made where you, we think we made the world I think that's where atheism lives and and breathes yes yeah, it's,
1: it's it's triggered something now in my mind this is several months ago, but um we had a gathering of um of ecumen an ecumenical gathering of the different religions here in yeah. Santa Barbara. and they chose. Laudato Si' as their point of, of departure, so that the Pope's letter. And it was a very fruitful evening because we had Buddhists, we had Hindus, we had Muslims, we had Jews, we had uh, Native Americans, we had hippies, like everybody came. And I was there, and I gave a little presentation. I talked about Romano Guardini in relation to Laudato Si'. And, um, but it was a good way in because everyone kind of got, okay environment, beauty, nature, you know, we're not here to rape the world, we're here to be part of it and all of that. It. So it was, it was a good way in, and we found a lot of common ground. But I remember there was a key moment in the process where I said, yeah, but you know, nature is not God. Huh. And I sort of just let it sit there, because especially, especially from the, the Native American uh, lady who was a professor at UCSB here, you know, uh, California at Santa Barbara, and um, she was doing the full kind of Native American nature, spirituality, and the rivers, and the seas, and the trees. And and I said, yeah, 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 I affirm all of that. Uh, and I did the thing about Genesis, you know, where all the elements come forth from God like a liturgical procession. But at the end of it is the human being who's there to preside like a priest or a bishop you know, at the end of the liturgical procession to praise God. On behalf of all creation, I was laying out that vision, I said the key thing here is augustine 's insight, as he looks around the world at all these beautiful, wonderful things, nevertheless, they say back to him, "Look higher, you know mm. look higher he he made us, and so that 's the key moment isn 't it biblically is we can totally get on board with an enthusiastic embrace of the natural world and all of its wonder, but then we make that move that every single bit of it is a creature of God, is not divine. Uh, so to me, it was a cool example, I thought, of of good ecumenical conversation where we found a lot of common ground and then a distinction was made that I know made some people uneasy, and, and I think...
2: And you didn't do the California courtesy of saying, my truth is no that way. God is not God or God is <laughs> not nature. Right, I said, right. The world is not God. It's beautiful, but it's not
1: God. Um, but you know, it's funny speaking of the beach down here. When I go for my walks, I'll see new age groups out there, like standing in a circle and chanting and stuff. And my instinct is kind of a Newman type instinct. Like, okay, it's natural religion. I get it. They're, they're trying to express something of their legitimate religious passions, but
2: we got to get them past nature worship. Hmm. Um, but
1: yeah, that's that's
2: the challenge. But I do find that uh, people who are into that type of, I don't know what you want to call it, cosmology or or spirituality, are a lot of times easier to talk to than than yeah. people who uh, you know take a hard view of even within the Catholic circles. You know, the like radical traditionalist, you know, that it has to be this way or or the highway. People yeah. that are really easygoing. Tend to be more interested in you and and have their opinions e- more easily changed. You know, like we're we're a religion of conversion, and I, I found that I mean it's so easy to get just ossified in in what you in your original conversion and not have that ongoing. Cardinal George brought this up in his book that one of the paradoxes is that we tend to get imprisoned in the moment we were liberated. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, he brings up you know the people. From the conciliar age that, you know, they felt a great liberation in their religious expression, not having to be bound to all these rules of fasting for meat on Fridays and the rosary and all this stuff. And so let's just get rid of that. And now I'm free to worship God as I as my conscience tells me to and blah, blah, blah. And it's it's so meaningful to have the mass wherever turned around and yada, yada, yada. Whereas. We, our generation, I, th- I think, and and he says, is liberated from secularism, liberated mm-hmm. from, yeah. in, in a lot of ways, that very move of getting rid of all of these cultural markers of a belief in God. You know, the Angelus bells and the Friday fast of from meat and, and the stuff that we kind of want to bring back because at least that anchors you to something beyond just this nebulous, everybody think what you want to think and nobody knows what life means and how to navigate decision-making and stuff because there's no, you're not in obedience to anyone. You're just on your own. But both of those generations or both of those groups of people tend to get stuck in their moment of liberation. And the the rad trads will, will say, no, the only way to evangelize or the only way to get back to even that language of getting back, the only way forward is to go backward or, and you understand what I'm saying.
1: Yeah, no, and that's it. Does sound like Cardinal George that that very uh, kind of trenchant insight that it's uh, the moment of liberation is so important. Obviously, it is. And so, boom, I'm going to stay there. That's where that's where it happened for me. Mm -hmm. Um, But the Catholic thing, you know, it's the thousand doors and they're all open. (laughs) There's a thousand ways into the Catholic reality. Um, Even if it's an angelic healing circle. (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, (laughs) like for them, that might be a way in. You start with that. Start with that. Well um, how
3: do you how do you help help people even we talk a ton the other great patron of 3 Dogs North besides Cardinal George and Saint Thérèse is Father Oaks and just the impact that he had yeah. on all of us with his I mean just a simple humanities class at mm-hmm. Mundelein by the way was Father Oaks I only knew him the last year of his life was he that crazy the whole time he was at Mundelein
0: <laughs> by crazy mean <you> know. <laughs> what? It, I don't even know. Like just he, he, his oaks is eccentric. Yeah. He yeah. yeah. wore a Hawaiian t shirt and carried yeah. his books in a plastic bag. <laughs> yeah. From, from public yeah. or something.
1: Yeah. He, was, uh, he was a great and unique personality. Yeah. I met him when he came yeah. up here to be Pollock Theologian, which is now what over 10 years ago. I had known his writing. I remember the first time I came across it was in First Things. It was an article. I forget what it was on, but I remember reading and thinking, man, this guy is like massively smart. Intimidatingly smart, like man, he's read everybody. <laughs> so I knew him from his writings, and then I'd read his book on Baltazar because I taught before he got there. Long before you guys were at Mundiline, I taught the course in Baltazar <laughs> for about ten years. So I was very interested in Baltazar, and of course, read Ed Oakes on him. I had read the, his uh, uh, translation too of the uh, Baltazar book on Bart. You know, anyway, so I, I knew him indirectly. Then he came, <laughs> and uh, I remember when he arrived uh, before he physically got there something like 150 boxes of books arrived. <laughs> and we all said, this man is not staying for a year. I mean, so it turned out, of course, that, you know, he was kind of unhappy where he was, and he found a very happy home at Mundelein, and we were delighted he stayed. But it was like he was announcing, look, I'm staying. You know, I'm sending, <laughs> sending 10,000 books to you. So That's his anchor up. books. And you know what's, what's ironic, as I, as I think of that now, is after he died, I was rector at the time, And the Jesuits graciously said, you know, that we could keep all his books. So those books that arrived that day long ago ended up wow. in the Mundelein Library. Mm-hmm. Very uh, oh, wow. Anyway, Ed, yes, was always kind of delightfully eccentric. Um, he and and uh, Father Boyle, we say he had the Jesuit <laughs> gift for, you know, <laughs> oh my for the sartorial gift. Oh, man. They both looked like they just rolled out of bed, you know, after about a <laughs> week of sleep. Um, but that was part of his part of his uh, his charm. He was. Utterly delightful in conversation. I I loved it when he was in the kitchen, if I'd come in, and we were talking about books we were reading, and uh, you learn an enormous amount from him, always within a a funny context and and irony. Uh, He was so sharp in many senses of that term. He was sharp in his intelligence and sharp in his wit and sharp in his critique, Um, but a lot of fun. I I remember laughing a lot with Ed Oakes. And we go for walks a lot. Like I, I just, I'd walk over to the cafeteria with him or back. And um, he always had something smart and sharp and insightful to say. Um, and yeah, he was always a little bit off center, let's say.
3: Well, I remember the first encounter I had with Father Oaks. I didn't know who he was. And he sat down. It's my first couple of weeks at Mundelein. He sat down at our table and it was somewhere in there that uh, Hitchens had just died. And oh. you must have done some video or something that oh. you really liked Hitchens writing. Yeah. And he just ranted for like 10 minutes how Hitchens was such a bore and all this other stuff. And I was like, <laughs> who is this guy, man? <laughs> um. But anyway, I find that after his humanities class, honestly, every book that I read is through the lens of that humanities class. Yeah. But um, even what we were talking about before, uh, a little more basic, but just like an engagement I don't know, through uh, through the humanities of like whatever culture you're put in. But that is I just got done reading The End of the Affair by Graham Greene. And what just blew me away with that book, a story of how God found this lady in her affair, like yep. in her and, adulterous yep. affair. And and yeah, yeah, her life did have to concretely change when she surrendered to God, became a disciple. Um, and it, it's just, it's a beautiful story. But you can't read that book without getting that, that exactly yeah. where God found her was in the absolute mess of her sin.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and Ed, so it's great that Ed sort of taught you that. He gave you a set of yeah. eyes, a set of interpretive lenses, and it was precisely through the humanities. I remember, like, he would teach the ancient Greeks and things like that and and mm-hmm. ancient rhetorical forms <laughs> and all those things. But that's super important because he just gave you lenses
2: for reading um, yeah. life. Well, because it's, priests it's, have to be experts in human nature. And, yeah, it's uh, the Catholic genius, right. And um, there's a science in novels, you know, great classic works of of writing that are kind of permanent human achievements tap into something that even you know reporting history fact for fact can't do. Right, um, no, quite right.
1: Do you know his book is coming out very soon, The Six Controversies on Grace?, do you know, that, that's the yeah, book on? He yeah, I heard about that. when he died. Uh, and I had the privilege of writing the preface for that. And uh, it's kind of a personal preface. I talked about my friendship with him and how I came to know him. And uh, that should be coming out very shortly, right? From Amazon. I saw it advertised. Yeah, I pre ordered it, it. It
2: didn't say, I was looking for the date, but it didn't say when it was coming out. It's
1: darn good, too. It's It's the book he was working on. And then he got that awful diagnosis and mm-hmm. he didn't just give up, he kept writing. And he finished that book. Um, While
0: he was um, dying, and I don't I remember, know, I, he ahead. could do this. T- he could do like a Tupac thing, which is very LA. <laughs> He's just publishing things posthumously, from yeah. yeah, from the grave. Like yeah. I don't know, who knows?
1: Uh, yeah, no, it's that's at Oaks, but I, I think I, <laughs> I think I put in the preface. The story we were at uh, Bill Mackesy's house. You know, the chair of our board it was his beautiful home in Lake Geneva. And the faculty, once in the summer, once a summer, we'd come out there for a day. And Ed came. And he was within months of his death at that point. And um, we were out there on this beautiful porch, you know, in the sun setting over Lake Geneva. And Ed looked at me and said, I am just so happy with my life right now.
2: Hmm.
1: It was amazing. And he was working on that book. And he said, I'm, I'm just so happy with my life right now. And so something happened to him. Uh yeah. We all noticed just how beautifully he died. You know, mm-hmm. he went to his death with such a, a blithe kind of spirit. Uh, I had hoped, actually, that he would die at Mundelein because I wanted to have the, his funeral up at Mundelein. But, you know, it was an act of, of grace on his part. He came to me and he said, you know, I've gotten to the point now where I'm just becoming a bother and people are rushing me to the hospital. And it's time for me to go back to the Jesuits and I'm gonna, they'll take care of me. And it was just like, nope, that's it. I'm going. And it was an act of graciousness toward us. And so off he went. He went to St. Louis. I knew when he left that I wouldn't see him alive again. And that's true. I saw
2: him next at his wake, you know. Um, but, but his no, he- eccentricity lasted till the end. You, you heard the story of what his sister said while he was Go ahead. not very communicative yeah. uh, on his deathbed. One of the last things he said to them was, "Put my, or set my legs akimbo. And they had they had to look up the word Akimbo. Gosh. That is perfect. Should I guess means one leg kim- over the other. What does
0: kim- what? Mean? Well, one of my favorite things about him was he was utterly shameless with how much he really loved his own writing and his <laughs> own his own great We would during his class, he would just read through articles that he wrote about <laughs> we were reading through some Shakespeare. And he would make us read and then reread lines while saying, like, listen to how delicious these are <laughs> like these are, these are his own words that he's making us slowly
2: digest
0: and Well maybe that's yeah. why he was so
2: happy with his life. I mean, he found the perfect fit. And and even yeah. I mean, that's moving to me that that you know, he would bring all his books and just say, You know what? I'm living and that and that he found a place where he was really appreciated. Because I mean he didn't fit the mold in any any sense like as a Jesuit as a yeah um I, I mean he just stood out and I remember I really appreciated I, I wanted to you know develop more of a kind of protege relationship with him when I was in pre theology I had a lot of spare time so I asked him you know what can I what should I be reading I'm really interested in this and that <clears throat> and he gave me Etienne Gilson's uh, The Unity of Philosophic Experience oh yeah yeah. So I spent one of our two week breaks. I just read that book and I took copious notes and filled an entire legal pad with, with, um, you know, notes and ideas and things like that. So I come to his office after break is over and I, or his room and I bring my notepad and I want to talk and feel smart and talk to Father Ed Oaks about ideas. And what does he do? He's just like, oh, you finished the book? Okay. He goes to his bookshelf, you know, they had those great glass bookshelves in the faculty yeah. rooms at Mundelein and he just pulls down like eight more books and he's like okay read these <laughs> <laughs> yeah. now that, I mean that was his way of of showing affection or or yeah uh, respect is that okay you read that book now here's what you and I mean <laughs> the life of an academic he was a pure academic he'd read everything yeah. he'd read everything yeah. and he was writing constantly even till he was dying and yeah um, he
1: brought up to the dying day yeah. I don't think be- I could
2: do that my single favorite
1: Ed Oak story is <laughs> when he was a young, like, scholastic in the Jesuits. He was assigned to a high school at one point, teaching high school. And anomalously, they made him the diving coach. And I said, <laughs> what, what did you know about, about diving? He said, absolutely nothing. And he said, but it was the summer when he was reading Baltazar for the first time. And so he said, all I did, I'd go out to the pool, and the guys would start diving. And I'm just reading Baltazar. And I said, well, were you... Were you coaching at all? He goes, "No, I knew nothing about it." I would look up and say, "You're all doing great," and he. And the story gets better because the diving team won like the state championship.
3: And
2: is, I could see like, them dumping Gatorade on, on his back yeah, while he's I holding spent,
1: the book. like you know the greatest coach of. of time. And he said, "That's my first red ball, I got through the
0: entire corpus." No. Oh, that is a classic story. <laughs> I can remember as it was even after he was diagnosed, and it was pretty clear that he was going to be dying shortly. Um, Trying, it was like right before we had um, Father Hebden's Christology class, and I wanted to hear about his book um, from was it Infinity Dwindled to Infancy, which he just loved the title. But (laughs) I was trying to pry his ideas from the book out of him in person. And he refused to tell me about the book because he he was adamant that I buy a copy. He was like, "Mm -mm, you're not getting away easy. I want you to purchase it on Amazon. And he just left it at that. Yeah. Even as he was dying, he wanted me to buy his book. And even though he would have seen none of that money, it would have gone to the Jesuits. Yeah, exactly.
2: Yeah. He just wants it on your shelf.
1: (laughs) That's probably true. That's very good. That's a a darn good book, too, Mm -hmm. for like an intro to Christology or a textbook for Christology. But the one on grace too is is very fine. It's and, and what I said I think at his, at his wake, he had this he had this feel for the really hard questions in theology that most of us would kind of prefer to to bracket like oh I kind of get into the nature and grace again and predestination <laughs> and freedom. The really hard questions he loved, hmm. and this book is six examples of like really hard theological questions, and he does it with uh, tremendous uh, grace and intelligence and. So, yeah, look for that. And again, buy it for his sake. Buy the book. Buy buy the hard copy. I might get a copy because I wrote the preface.
2: Maybe they'll send me a copy. (laughs) With an invoice. Oh, buy it, yeah. Yeah, Real quick, we're getting close to the end here, but anything um, you miss about Chicago?
1: Oh, gosh, a lot of things. I I, I will say I do not miss the weather, Mm. and I've grown very quickly to love (laughs) California weather. When I was home briefly at Easter time, it's like April 2nd. It's snowing. It's like snow squalls. And I I become a Californian that way. I'm like, give me a break, you know. And here in Santa Barbara, it's like, it's just lovely every day. So I love, love, love that. I don't like Chicago weather, but a lot of things about Chicago I miss. All kinds of people, and I miss Mundelein. A lot. You know, it was it was my life for so many years. You're gonna miss um, being here when the Cubs win the World Series this year. Oh my I mentioned it yesterday with the kids. I said, um, I said, when I was your age, I wanted to be a baseball player, which is true. I wanted to be shortstop for the Cubs. And then I, I told them about my experience learning Thomas Aquinas as a high school. When I said, when I was your age, my whole life changed. Anyway, and then I said to the people, all those decades I follow the Chicago Cubs with my whole heart. <laughs> and the year I moved to California, they become the premier team in baseball yeah anyway, uh, so stay
2: you're like our albatross stay away i know
1: you gotta stay away yeah. I, I so i love all that about chicago You know, i missed the, the church in chicago and all my friends back there and um well we miss you too
0: i appreciate yeah, that absolutely. and uh you know i hope to get back when i can from time to time mm-hmm. well hey father i have a relationship oh my gosh i keep calling you father how Barry? Dare you? <laughs> <laughs> he's a successor to, of the apostles mike how dare you call me That's,
2: father,
3: Mike if you're not going to take this podcast seriously man just, just go. look
0: y'all know where I stand on the podcast I've never taken it seriously I'm um, yeah, not a fan this is no, nothing new but one of the cool things about being on internship at the parish is really one being grateful for the formation of like really studying the hand of God because in people's lives like in their in their mess you're able to see the divine life in action in ways that other people might not be able to see. And it's incredibly life bringing and really beautiful to be able to be that voice of love of like, Hey, this is God in your own life. And right. I was wondering as a Bishop, how, like, are you able to see God's hand in a lot of things and throughout people's lives? Is there still that experience of seeing the Lord in, in relationships in people, Especially in their messes, kind of like Rob what Rob was talking oh, about,
1: uh, yeah, I mean, maybe not as directly as the parish priest who's really in the front lines, but yeah, as I said it's it's a much more pastoral job than I've had for a long time, and uh, yeah, you just get you do get involved with people again, not as quite as directly. um you're working directly with priests, and you'll get that you know in, in the messiness of of their own lives to try to discern where god is is acting. Um, but yeah, absolutely. I, I I found it to be a, a, a deeply satisfying part of my life now, how pastoral it's become.
2: Well, yeah. we hope you come back to Chicago soon as Pope or something. Oh, as Pope. <laughs> uh, yeah, <absolutely. laughs> I don't know how all that works. I I'm would, just not, a lowly would, parish priest. <laughs> would not hold my breath.
1: <laughs> Good. No, it's great talking to you guys. Yeah, we, we really,
2: really awesome. appreciate it. I'm very yeah, proud
1: of I, I've heard that uh, your listenership has, has gotten pretty big, huh, for this podcast?
2: Decently big. Bigger. It's great. Bigger, no, yeah. it's
1: terrific. Keep doing it. And uh, you're perpetuating the spirit of uh, Three North and of Mundelein. And uh-huh. I'm glad you're invoking those great uh, heroes
2: from Cardinal George to Ed Oaks. That's terrific. And um, again, I don't think that any of them are bragging in heaven about being our patron saints. <laughs> <but. laughs> well, I found it Three Dog North. That's Ed Oaks. <laughs> So You have dogs? to check these guys out. What are
1: these dogs? <laughs> yeah, they're really good.
3: <laughs> no, seriously, Bishop. It's great to it's great to talk to you, and and I really did mean that. Like of anything, your time as rector or doctrine of God, like it's all great. It's all it really has impacted internship, but not to say you have a legacy yet at Mundelein, but at least in my life, like just reflecting on getting to talk to you, and I just remember that line of go tell them you know, how great it is to be a priest. And I found yeah. that like vocations talks and, and being here, man, that's what counts like at the end of the day. So anyway, yeah. super, well, say, super. Great say to talk a, to
1: a prayer for Charlie Meyer. I saw him when I was home. In fact, yeah. in fact you know what it was? I went to the, the grave of Cardinal George and then I was going down to see the sisters from the <laughs> Cardinal's house. And on the <laughs> way I said, Oh God, you know, I to go see Charlie. And I stopped by the nursing home and saw Charlie and he's doing pretty well at St. Benedict's home. But, uh-huh. uh, Say a prayer for him.
2: We will,
0: yeah, absolutely, certainly.
2: All right, blessings on the rest of your day and your meetings. Thank
1: you. Yeah, and say a prayer for these guys tonight. I'm eager to meet them. They're they're kind of your peers. Mm -hmm. The guy's about to be uh, ordained Mm -hmm. to the priesthood for L.A., so I'm very eager to find out about you know the seminary and their experience here. I I just don't know that much about it yet.
2: Hey, you guys want to say a little prayer right now?
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: Will you lead us, Bishop? Sure.
1: In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Gracious Lord, we give you thanks for all your gifts to us. Thank you especially for the gift of the people that you've sent to us, these great saints and teachers and leaders who have communicated to us your grace and your presence. Yes. We thank you for them. We ask your blessing very specially on Father Ed Oaks and Cardinal George and um, Charlie Meyer, all those who have uh, influenced us and inspired us. Lord, continue to give us the strength that we need to do the work that you've given us in the church. And we pray, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord, the Lord is with, with thee. thee. Blessed art thou, thou among, among women, women, and blessed is the fruit of thy God womb, Jesus. Jesus. Holy, Holy Mary, Mother of God, God pray for, for us sinners, now and at, at the hour of our death. Amen. Amen. Little flower. Pray for us. Pray for us. the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.
2: Amen. 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 God bless you, Bishop Barron. Always All in right. our prayers.
1: God bless you guys, and good luck with the uh, podcast. Thank you. Yeah. Thank, Thank you. God.
2: God. God. Peace. You. Bye. Peace.